Hello and welcome to episode four of the Instant Junk podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Jill. Our cinema review this episode is the latest film Upgrade. Our streaming content review will be Unearthed and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery. And for our review rewind, we'll be going back to 1983 to look at the John Landis classic, Trading Places. Did you see that? Hmm? You thought I was an invalid, but you didn't know that I'm a fucking ninja. <laughs> While I am state-of-the-art gray, I am not a ninja. This week's cinema release is Upgrade a science fiction body horror written and directed by Lee Wannell, starring Logan Marshall Green, Betty Gabriel and Harrison Gilbertson. I've been waiting to talk about this film. Oh, me too. I, oh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have no idea. I guess we should just get into it. Let's, let's talk about what it's about. <sighs> mm. So it's sort of set in the near future, yes. I guess. It's a very dystopian future, I would say. The landscapes in this. It's nearly, I, I think it's kind of nearly Blade Runner-esque, but without yes. all the neon Japanese sort of yeah. stuff. Take all of that out. And then you've got the opening for Upgrade. Yeah. And I love the way that you're introduced to the main character and he is about as Luddite as you can get in this world. He's, you know, he's in his little man cave and it looks like most men's today's man caves yeah in, in considering it's in the future it just looks like he's now so you yeah. don't realize it's as yeah. futuristic until his missus comes along in her shoe yeah it looked like a shoe yes a self-driving <laughs> shoe of uh, ubertechiness i was just like what the hell is going on he was working on a firebird car and now he opens up his garage door and it's future world what the fuck so that was a really nice kind of sidestep for me because it was completely unexpected. It's It was definitely a sort of quiet nod to what would transpire as the film goes on. There's a lot of sort of missteps. There's quite a lot of secret things that you're like, oh. It's oh. Swerve City, yeah. this film. I loved it. I mean, when you said, Jill, let's watch this, I was like, oh, okay, what is this? Looked at the poster, thought, oh, this looks like a pile of standardized bullshit i don't want to watch it and for but the first you wanted time to make me happy i did <laughs> but also i usually i'm a bit of a i love a spoiler for myself mm. so i go and look up the film and everything about it and try and ascertain what it's about and then this is the first time i actually went you know what i'm not gonna do anything i'm just gonna go and watch the film and i'm so happy i did yeah i really am but back onto the plot <gasps> Because we, we will veer a lot because there's just so much squee in this film. Yes, I'm currently <laughs> rubbing my thighs unabashedly. So much squee. Um, so, yeah, Grey Trace, who's played by Logan Marshall Green, is this kind of Luddite guy mm. who has no interest in tech. None. none whatsoever. And in contrast, his wife, Asha, who actually wears the pants, doesn't she? And then some. Yeah, so she's the... The breadwinner. Mm. I am going to prime you that, although we usually do spoilers, it probably will have some massive spoilers yes. for the film. Yes. The film is so great that we have to talk about all of it. And if we miss bits out, it won't make any sense. Yes. We're in this house anyway with Grey and Asher. And Grey is a mechanic, essentially. And he mm. has restored this. Is it a firebird? It's a firebird. For this guy called Erin. Yes. And he needs someone to drive him home because he's going to drive the car there, mm -hmm. but he can't operate his wife's shoe car. Yes. 
he doesn't understand it because again he doesn't like tech no. he likes to feel vroom vroom yeah like he's driving yes so he takes his wife along with him to this guy's house he's like you need to see this guy's house mm. it's insane and he gets to this guy's house and you're kind of looking at it going where is the house it's like on a it's on like this huge field yeah and it turns out that this guy's house is it you literally go down some stairs in between these rocks that have made an archway but you can't really even see the stairs yeah the angles that they film it at it just looks like they're just disappearing into yeah. the ground i mean the only reason why you know their steps is there's a kind of bounce to their, to their descent and it's yeah. like oh those are stairs and obviously once they cut to the kind of courtyardy bit you see like this what looks like a stairway yeah and then it's like this sort of subterranean ecosystem type thing yeah it's really it's bizarre yet really beautiful yeah which makes sense so when you meet Aaron, he's this paranoid kids I, I mean i wouldn't put him any older than maybe his early 20s yeah he's a very successful man in nanotech yeah he's playing with a cloud yeah he's actually playing with a rain cloud to ease his mind i yeah. believe was the reason i did have a little internal giggle when they were like he was like this is my cloud and i thought Haha, tech cloud ha. yes <laughs> the knowing wink to the yeah <laughs> i'm playing with my cloud <laughs> and um it turns out that Aaron's company is actually a direct um rival rival of ash's company yes and you're like oh is this how is this something Ooh. what's going to happen here Ooh. and they they kind of talk tech for a while and he's a bit rude to her mm. uh, the, one thing about this guy is that he doesn't get out that much so therefore human interaction he is has something no people alien skills to him. absolutely no people yeah. skills not he, someone you want to drink with no he doesn't hold back no and he shows them this little microchip he looks like a little what did it gray refer to it as like a spider or something yeah and it's a little microchip that erin has created in order to enhance the human body mm. but it's in a prototype at the moment yes top secret don't talk to anyone about it although he is basically telling his main competitor exactly and then it kind of <laughs> and gray being not for that kind of thing kind of shuts it down it's just like shut up yeah what load of shit and they they leave yes which you can't really blame them for no and then they're driving in the shoe they get a little bit randy because you're not driving so why not shag in your car that bit made me feel a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, I just kept thinking, oh, you're going to crash and you're yeah, going to be crashing. That's why I felt uncomfortable. Because you know, as soon as like a fucking seatbelt comes undone, something is going to ram you up the arse. And it pretty much did, but it didn't ram them. Yeah. Their car kind of malfunctioned. Yes. And runs them off the road. Yes. Yeah, the car just literally stops working as it should. Yeah, Grey notices and he's just like, this isn't right. Yeah, this isn't. This is where I grew up. This isn't where we live. Turns out that the main reason why he's a luddite is because he grew up where technology didn't really touch. Yeah, he's from the ghetto. From the ghetto. From the ghetto. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they try and get control of the car. They can't, and then the car ends up spinning off into a homeless encampment. As you do, yeah. Because you know, all non-techy people have to be hobos, pretty much. But there was no Rutger Hauer. There was no hobo for shotgun. If only Shame. there was, this film probably wouldn't have been made. Because when they crash, some people drive up afterwards and kind of pull him out of the car, steal some stuff and... Kills his wife, cripples him. Yeah, it was really... 
it's really sad yeah it was actually one of those moments like oh because obviously you see the wife getting shot and she falls to the ground and he's like ah and then they force him down to the ground and then they use something on his neck which basically makes him a quadriplegic it's like a they said it was like a cattle thing wasn't it yeah like a cattle gun was it yeah right into the the spine yeah and it it was actually quiet you hear the crunch yeah and it was you kind of gotten this gut punch but it makes you like well what's gonna happen now so the wife is dead and he is crippled and then you get this montage of him basically waking up and going into recovering recuperation which is really it was really sad actually and then you get him talking to the police the police officer cortez and she's basically saying, oh, you know, we, we haven't got any further. Well, wasn't there cloaking on their faces? Well, they, they at the very least, wore masks they while had, they were doing that. Yeah, they had little sort of half-face masks. Although the main guy, Fisk, yeah. took his down, but it, the, the camera was so grainy yeah. that you couldn't see anything. They couldn't find anything on them. These guys are basically off the grid. Yeah, like most CCTV nowadays. Yeah, still useless even in the near future. <laughs> And Gray is just basically in this depression. He's a he's a shell of his former self. Him being a luddite, he now has to rely on machinery. Oh, he hates it. Yes. And his mum has to, his mum looks after him, but because his house is pretty much set to look after him, she doesn't always need to be there. Yeah, she's there just to for you know for the bathing and all that. Yeah, and when he's in hospital, Erin comes to visit Mm. and he comes with this sort of proposition basically saying that thing that i showed you you could test out this prototype i do need to rewind you a bit oh have i gone too far yes um the reason why he ends up back in hospital is because he tries to top himself yes that was harrowing you didn't quite understand what he was doing because he asked for his medication it's like an injection into his hand yeah and then he says oh it didn't work i'll do it again and then you're like oh Haha, <laughs> technology. And then he keeps asking, and you're like, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, stop technology. And technology does stop at the fatal one. Yeah. But he is still OD'd. Yeah. So, yeah, when he does that, you're kind of like, okay, so are you going to pass on? And then someone, I don't know, reanimates you. Yes. And then you see him in the hospital, and then Aaron comes in with his his thing saying, you know, I can... Rebuild you. Rebuild you and plant stem, as it's called. Yep. The it- little spidery thing that yeah, the he's, chip that he was shown at the very beginning of the film yeah and he pretty much gets told to fuck off yeah gray ends up going home and then he reconsiders the proposition yeah and then we see um surgery yeah yeah it's an interesting set i didn't i wasn't a fan of the surgery scene not because it was it it was it, very techy it was kind of like I, the way he was lying really annoyed me. So I was like, if you're really having surgery, to lie on your front and then have one arm bent and then the other one straight, it looks like you've just collapsed. It doesn't look like you're in a good position. No, not at all. But I suppose he can't feel his limbs, so it doesn't really matter yeah. to him. He's got a dead arm or not. Obviously, he has the surgery. 
and we find out that it actually goes a bit better than what they thought because he starts moving quicker than they expected. Yeah, very strong. Yes. And then they hit him with that you can't tell anyone about this. Yeah, he has to sign like an NDA. Yeah. To not mention, so basically he has to continue to pretend he's a quadriplegic. Yeah. But. He's not. When he's at home, he can essentially wander about the house and do whatever he wants. And he does that until mm-hmm. Stem starts talking to him. Oh, yes. Which was a bit <laughs> freaky. I should I should say that Stem kind of makes his presence known when Grey's looking at the evidence of his wife's murder. Yeah. And Stem's like, oh, can I suggest something? Which would freak anyone. Yes. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> um, and he shows some incriminating evidence that allows him to find the first person <gasps> on his list. Oh, yes. Yes. And then you start getting, that's when the moral implications come in on it. Yes. Where he's now got information and he wants to go and tell Cortez, the policewoman, that he's got a name. Yeah. But Stem goes, you know, how can you explain this this information that I've just given you? Because A, you're a quadriplegic and B, the camera quality is so low that you would not be able to see that with With your your eyes. Yeah. And he was kind of like, you're right. So he has to go and find more evidence. <gasps> yeah. So he rolls up in his wheelchair, which I thought was kind of hilarious because he gets out of it and he's like, lock wheelchair. And I'm yeah. like, you've just parked it next to someone's car. Yeah. <laughs> someone's going to be like, who parked this fucking wheelchair in the middle of the fucking road? And it's, you know, it was one of the things that annoyed me as well. It's like he's out in broad daylight. Wondering about. And it's like, you're meant to pretend to be a quadriplegic, mate. Yeah, just because you're in the worst part of town doesn't mean that there's none of those police drones, because there were. Yes. But he goes into this guy's house, which looks a bit shabby, but also has tablet tables. Yes. He can't afford nice decor, but he can afford a table tablet. I mean, I'd probably have a table tablet, but then it wouldn't be my drug table, as it was this guy's. Yeah, he did not take good care of his shit. No. And he also didn't encrypt his tablet table. Grey goes around the flat looking for evidence and Stem's like, have you looked here? Why don't you check his messages? Mm-hmm. All of this, it's the kind of stuff where I'm a bit like, at points, Stem is a little bit too smart. Like, you kind of think, this is literally just quick progression. Yeah. Like, really, can you do that? Mm. Really, have you got this amount of knowledge knowledge and awareness of everything that is outside of your human host? Yes. But he does, to a degree. Yes. There are points that he can't. Yes. And, um... Yeah, he, the guy comes home. And I thought <laughs> I thought it was quite funny, because Stem's like, you need to hide behind the bookcase. And he kind of hides in between the bookcase and the curtain, just looking really sheepish. Yeah. And I have to say that he says, hide behind a bookcase that is still in plain view of <laughs> the entire room. Yeah, I mean, there was nowhere to go. It was kind of like an open house. Yes. It, there was nowhere for him to hide. And then the good stuff happens. Oh, yeah. I'll let you talk about the good uh, stuff. So a kind of fight ensues. <laughs> and at first, Grey is kick- getting his ass kicked to Kingdom Come. It, yeah. is, it is not a fair fight. And then Stem turns right and says, I can assist you if you give me permission. Yeah. And he says, permission granted, permission granted. And then the, the angel sang for me. <laughs> and just what happened? He did this tombstone, didn't he? Yeah, he just <sighs> literally just got bolt right up to his feet and just started 
beating, beating the living shit out of this other guy. And it's just like robotic movements, but he is taking chunks out of this guy. I mean, this is uh, things are flying. There's plates landing on this guy's head these guys getting cut to ribbons he's yeah. getting the ever-living shit beaten out of him i'm not understanding how he's still standing yeah yeah and gray obviously he's still conscious through all this he just has no actual control over the movements it's stem doing all the movements so of course stem is in fact kicking the shit out of this guy and gray's like i, I think he's had enough now marshall green was so good that's yes. this is when he started to shine like oh yes the definitely. movements the his face the entire time he's like, oh shit <laughs> like the absolute confusion and fear but then also going yeah i'm fucking kicking ass but what the fuck is happening stop doing this um but of course the guy's not dropping that's no. the problem and how they finally down oh. the guy oh my god it's it is the most violent chelsea smile i have ever seen in my life i don't think there was any other truly worse moment in the film there's there wasn't really there was a few but that one yeah, got you it was a near decapitation but yeah. he, li- he literally just grabs a knife and jams it in his mouth like yeah like he was cutting some cheese or something yes. like boff but oh, it was such a beautiful moment, and it's just when that moment happened when he did the the knife, oh. and it, again it was Logan Marshall Green's face, <laughs> just like the oh. fuck, <laughs> and then he had to go be sick, <laughs> and then he had to go clean up the evidence. Yeah, Stan was just like, okay, now we need to leave, but first we need to clean up, and he's like, uh, what? But he didn't do a good job cleaning. I kind of feel that Stem dubbed him in because Grey was a bit like, oh, I, I don't even know where I've been. Stem's like, I can help you with that. I, I have. Yeah. And then somehow, yet you miss the, the, boot. the boot print outside. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't understand how you miss something so blatantly obvious. I think it was on purpose. Probably. But it's, again, we are dealing with someone who, for the longest time, was a quadriplegic and then has this thing put into the back of his neck that helps him to walk and is now talking to him. Yeah, I can sort of see how he could miss a boot print. It must be all very overwhelming. Yeah, for everyone <laughs> involved. Yeah. And then, obviously, the police officer then has to work out who killed this this guy. And she sees the drone footage of this quadriplegic going down the alley. And she's like, but how? Yeah. Can I just say what annoyed me most is that... If she had just carried on watching for a little bit, she would have seen the guy hop out of his fucking chair. And yeah. then it would have been, holy shit, he's not quadriplegic. She's a bit half-assed. But also, she's not. she wasn't a thick person either, because she no. knew. Because as soon as they had the print and they were like, oh, it's engine oil. Yeah. It's like he was the only guy in the entire city who he would was... have engine oil and yeah. possibly be around this guy's house. Yeah. And she put two and two together. She got it, but then she couldn't make it connect. Yes. That she was her issue. She couldn't prove it. That yeah. was the thing. Because obviously he was like, well, I'm a quadriplegic. And then he had STEM because she had gone to his house to try and, you know, catch him off guard. And STEM is there going, she uh, she suspects it was you. You know, she thinks you're lying, blah, blah, blah. Don't look around. Just look straight at her. When, like mm. he was giving him the advice. Yeah, coaching him proper. Yeah. Just, I mean, it worked, but mm. she was still suspicious. There yeah. was no way. There was no way at all. No. But yeah, oh, I'm still in awe of the fight scene. Yeah. <laughs> but what followed is another fight scene because they got more information. Yes. It's constant information, isn't yes. it? And this one leads them to a dive bar back from basically his back home. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie, that dive bar looked kind of cool. I want to drink there. I want to drink there. I mean, I don't want to have any fights there, and I feel like you'd have to get cut to go there, but I, maybe I'll I, take a cut. I'll take a cut. They had really <laughs> cool music there. They do. Um, but obviously, he goes in, in his wheelchair, still acting like a quadriplegic. <laughs> yeah, tries to order, what is it, a whiskey? <laughs> yeah. With and a straw. Th- and then ask some guy to hold the glass for him. Yeah. And then he does this stupid announcement. Yeah. To be like, does anybody know, basically, who killed my fucking wife? Yeah. And then some big black guy stands up and takes him into the bathroom. Ah, uh, yeah. Because yeah, Grey basically goads him and is like, yeah, I'll fuck you up, mate. Yeah. And black guy's like, whatever, come with me. Takes him into the bathroom and th- basically throws him onto the floor. Yeah. And then stabs him with knives so stems like oh i've turned off all your pain receptors yeah stabs him with knives so he basically is a quadruped he can't feel anything Mm. and then tables turn yeah and then more fighting more fighting and then basically you don't see it but my you hear it oh it's basically the Obviously, Stem has control of the body, that he controls the fighting. Obviously, we know Stem's MO, and yeah, he kicks his ass. But then Stem tells Grey to grab the knife. To make him talk. And he basically just cuts his face to ribbons. Yeah, so Grey's got the knife, and he's trying to be hard, going like, you'll tell me who it is that paid you to do this shit. And Grey's just like, ha, 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 ha. Fuck yeah. And Stem's just like... I know how to make him talk. And Grey's just like, oh, I can kind of do it. And it looks like he's about to try and chop off his ear or something. Yeah. And then he can't. He wimps out and Stem's like, let me take over. And then literally, I don't know, just fucking slices his face into nothing. Yeah. And the guy can just about talk. Mm. Gives him a name. Yeah. Fisk. Yeah. And dies. Yeah. And while this is happening, oh, we forgot the important bit that we should have mentioned. (gasps) So after the first fight scene, you find out Eren's very angry. So Grey goes to Eren's house. Eren's very angry and's like, I track you. Of course, I'm going to track my investment. Yes. What do the that fuck again. are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What the hell are you doing? If you do that again, I will shut you down. So now we fast forward. He's in this place and he's been tracked again. And Stem knows he's being tracked because yeah. obviously Stem's very intelligent and says, Aaron is trying to shut me down. I will give you this location. Yeah. You need to install a rootkit. So then this doesn't happen again, and you have no time. Yes. <laughs> so he kind of runs out, mm. gives his wheelchair to some homeless guy, which is quite a funny scene. Yes. And has to try and find, I think it was Jamie. Yes. Before his body begins to shut down. Mm-hmm. So while he's on his way to find this Jamie place, you've got the representatives of Erin's company coming to find him. Mm-hmm. But you also have Fisk, who shows up at the bar, mm-hmm. sees his friend. And does this sort of, I don't know, upload? Yes. <laughs> from his it, eye? <laughs> yeah, that was oh, that that was almost reminiscent of that scene from Terminator 2. Remember when he... Oh, right the, in the centre, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like that. It was like a little needle. And then it's like he turned on... Like a, a tape recorder. Yeah. Which, and he gets all the information and he's like, I know where he is. Again, how convenient. Yes. We catch back up with Grey, who's trying to get to Jamie's house and his limbs. I think one of his legs goes just outside the door. He's literally deteriorating fast. Yeah. But it's quite... The way it was filmed was awesome. Yeah. You might as well just had a ticking clock right in the corner. Totally. It was just so good. And again, I can't 
express how great Marshall Green was yes, doing was, this. Oh, he was so damn good. Yeah, trying to get up those stairs. Mm. He's just like, please, please, come on, come on. Yeah. Dragging himself. But he makes it just in time. And he still has a sense of humour about himself. Yes. <laughs> well, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so for fuck's sake, come on. And it's, you know, and then it's the race against time because you've got Aaron's guys coming to get him to shut him down. Yeah. And you've got Fisk coming to get him to shut him down. Yeah. And in different ways. <laughs> and you've got Jamie who is plugging in wires to do this root kit. And it's all, will this happen in time? Yeah. And for a brief moment, you think, shit, no. Even by Hollywood standards, it this is too close to call especially when the fisk gets into the building and she sees fisk and she just shuts up her laptop and wanders off and you don't know if it's complete you're like and he doesn't know if it's complete because he has no concept yeah and stem's offline because stem had essentially been shut down yes so you have no idea if it's worked but then he gets he can move his finger and you're like okay that's good and stem's coming back online but you don't know how long it's going to take yeah because he's rebooting yeah yeah (laughs) And it's all, and you catch him sort of crawling, crawling away. away, and Fisk is already up there watching him crawl away. Yeah, but then Stem comes online and Tombstone. <laughs> yes, he has this thing about just going bolt upright from his feet. Yeah, and then obviously he fights a little bit and says, "No, I, you need to run now." Yeah, this just is, run. Yeah, basically what happens is he runs upstairs and he manages to separate Fisk's associate from yeah. him. And obviously they have a bit of a fight on the rooftop, but it ends with basically (laughs) Grey manages to turn the handgun onto this guy's face while the guy's pulling the trigger and you just see a head go. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) It was quite a graphic pop. I I can't. It was definitely a a pop. (laughs) (laughs) It was a squashed raspberry. Yeah. And it was just, it was visually so well done. Yeah. And again, acting, like the fear of you're fighting and then you're just like, someone else is using your body to fight, but you've just popped this man's head off and Grace's face was just like, oh shit, not again. Yeah. <laughs> Please. But obviously he takes this as his cue to go off. home. <laughs> yeah. Goodbye. So he gets home and his mum's there and his mum's like, what the hell is going on? Especially as he's just walked into his own house. Yes. His mum doesn't know about the implant because no one's meant to know about the implant. And all of a sudden her quadriplegic son is walking in on his own two feet. Yeah. So he kind of has to explain, but he doesn't tell the whole story. He no. just explains how he can walk. Yeah. And then he kind of gets washed up and then yeah, goes, goes to bed. Goes to bed. And then he has a vivid dream mm-hmm. of his wife talking about pizza or something, wasn't it? Yeah. And he wakes up with a shock and oh, the stem said, did you have a nightmare? And he was a bit like, not really. Yeah. <laughs> so. But this spoilers, beautiful spoilers. moment between stem and Grey is ruined by. Fucking Cortez, isn't it? Yep. Cortez, the most useless cop ever so she comes in and she's proper on suspicion route now because he's left his stupid chair yeah <laughs> outside but he's not in it how yeah. did he get home and he makes up some cock and bull story that he, someone managed to get him home and yeah. his mum's in the room and she's like uh... i know you're lying and it's just yeah it's it's all a bit weird but you find out that cortez is 
also has an ace up her sleeve that she proves that she's not so dumb. Yeah. Because she leaves a listening device. So she's she's dropped this in, I think it was his jacket pocket. Yeah. And her and his mum leave the room. And then it's a conversation between him and Stem where the tables start to turn a little bit. Yeah. Where Gray's basically just had enough. He's yeah, he just can't like, do it anymore. I, I'm not a fan of killing. <laughs> yeah. I didn't set out to do this. And Stem's like, no, we've got a mission. Yeah. We need to complete the mission. Yeah. And he all, you know, Stem also mentions that, you know, Fisk knows who you are. If you don't finish it, he will. Yeah, he will come. So it needs to be ended. Yeah. And Grey is still a bit like, no, and Stem's like, well, I can do what I want because the code that I gave you to give to Jamie means that there are no barriers yeah. to me anymore. So I can do whatever the fuck I want, whenever the fuck I want, and I'm going to take over your body and we're going to go. Yeah. And Stem makes him just get up and walk out. Yeah. And Grey's face is just so... Uh-oh. There's nothing I can do. Yeah. Like he's he's kind of emotionless. He yeah. kind of, he becomes this robot and he walks past his mum and he gets into his one of his other cars. Yeah. And Cortez is outside and she was listening to this and she thinks that he was on the phone because mm. you you can't hear Stem. Yeah. You just hear him. Him saying I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this and then resigning and just going, mm. taking a gun with him and then they do a, a car chase. Actually, I thought it was a really good car chase. Yeah, and the way it ended was actually quite awesome because obviously she's in a a normal car, like a normal car. None of these fancy shoeboxes. How they end the car chase yeah. is Stem manages to take over another person with a shoebox car and yeah. uses it to basically start reversing to ram into her normal car. Yeah. And I was a bit worried that when the other car smashed in, that that was it. I was a bit like, that's not the way for her to go, surely. Yeah. But she doesn't. Yeah. And she goes back to his house and then goes to his mum, tell me what's going on. And she does. Yeah. So So while all this is happening, we get to Fisk. Yeah. And Fisk, to me, looks like this really weird kind of... What did I call him? Emo Hitler or something. Yes. Yeah. He had a weird haircut and this weird kind of moustache. Yeah, it was kind of like somewhere between prepubescent boy and, I don't know, alopecia. It was just this weird kind of nappy tash on his lip. Yeah, but it basically turns out that he was a guinea pig. Oh, he was a war hero and then he became a guinea pig for tests. Yeah. And they tooled him up to fuck and he loves his new life. Yeah. And it was, um, he calls himself the the newer race or something like yeah. that. Um, emo Hitler. Yeah, proper emo Hitler. Emo techie Hitler. Yeah, emo tech Hitler. <laughs> emo tech. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, the one thing about Fisk is he is very much the equal to Grey with Stem. Yeah. So it's the only way that Fisk could be beaten is by using emotion against him. Which, so Stem... So Fisk and Stem, we're going to say Fisk and Stem are fighting because when there's a fight scene, it isn't It isn't grey. So Fisk and Stem are fighting and Stem's just like, he's countering us. There's, I can't, Break I, I can't figure out how to do this. Help. And Grey figures something out where he just starts throwing in the emotional stuff. To, you know, he realises that the first guy that he basically chopped his head off is um fisk's brother and he's like mm-hmm. when i killed your brother blah 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 and it really sort of starts to fuck with fisk to yeah. the point where he gets the upper hand yeah. and he falls onto a shard of glass yep and pushes him in yeah and ends him yes and 
it's it's one of those things again where I think at that point secretly STEM was learning again. So that machine learning was coming in because it yeah. was something he couldn't do, but he figures out how to do it and then yes. he uses it again in a later scene. Yep, because uh, what we also find out uh, is that the person behind all of this is... Aaron! Hey! So they So after Fisk has been killed, Stem's like, you need to read his messages. And they've got like these little sort of knobby earpieces that yeah. he put in. So he puts it in and he gets a message from Aaron basically saying... I don't know, just get the job done or something like yeah. that. And he's like, oh, it's Aaron. So then you go down for the final showdown mm-hmm. uh, where they go to Aaron's house. Mm-hmm. And Cortez also goes down to Aaron's house because obviously she finds out that there's this sort of underhand deal that's gone on. Yeah. And then he goes in and confronts Aaron and he's just like, why did you do this? What is going on? And as he's doing it, Cortez comes in. It's that fucking trope of good cop but useless cop yeah because she comes in and doesn't bother to read the room yeah and she's just like drop the gun get on the floor and he's just like i this guy is the guy that killed my fucking wife yeah she's not listening yeah and so then you know she disarms him he's on the floor and then he fucks her up because stem takes control yeah and he's like stem's trying to kill her and he's like no stem don't do this don't do this she's good she's a good person yeah don't do it and he kind of manages to stop because Aaron kind of involves himself yeah and then the twist begins (gasps) oh it was a beautiful twist. Yeah, I mean, at this point, when they said, oh, it's Eren, I was like, of course it's Eren. How oh. did we not see this? Of course it is, but it wasn't Eren at all. No. So it turns out that Eren was being manipulated by Stem. Yeah. The entire time. So he had created Stem, and Stem had kind of got sentient Yes. Just a little bit, and wanted a human host. host. And at the point at the beginning where we were introduced to little microchip stem, stem had chosen Gray. He was like, him. Yeah. And that's where the hits come from. Mm -hmm. So stem had actually taken control of of the the car car. and Aaron had arranged those people to go and to kill. And this really starts to fuck with Gray. Gray's mind. And he's just like, what? Yeah. Like, and I think we'd all be in the same situation, like, what the what? hell is going on? <laughs> yeah. It was uh, so good. But what ultimately happens is I think, doesn't Grey try to end himself? Yeah, he tries to do a fight club and kind of sh- try and shoot his neck out. Yeah. So Grey's just like, so you've got Stem, Grey in the middle, Stem Grey, and then you've got Cortez sort of lying on the floor mm. whilst Stem's pointing a gun at her, mm-hmm. and you've got Aaron who's pointing a gun at stem mm-hmm. stem gray and they gray turns around and stem kind of takes control and oh it's like a little wasn't it like a little pen or something he just pushes into Aaron's head yes. to end him like it was just like yep and then he turns back to the police officer Cortez and Aaron's like, I, I don't want this. I don't mm. want you in here. I'd rather be a quadriplegic forever. I'd rather just be fucking dead. Yeah. And he tries to shoot his neck out. And it kind of goes bang, white light. And then you're back in the ho- hospital room with Grey waking up. And, and he sees his wife. And his wife's there. 
And it's that whole, oh, are you going to tell me this is a fucking Dallas moment? This is a dream. Mm. And you're kind of disappointed. I was disappointed. I don't know yes. if you were disappointed. I was. I was a bit like, no, this is not, not like a fucking this. dream. No. And if it's not a dream, I don't want him to just suddenly wake up after shooting himself in the fucking neck. Yeah. Because you don't know if he can move. Yeah. He's just sort of lying. And then he realises he can. And you're like, mm, uh. is this a dream? Is this a dream? And then another twist. Because then you snap back into reality. And and you still have Gray and Cortez in Aaron's house. Yeah. And Gray, who is now just Stem, yeah. says, you know, his mind finally broke, which was what Stem was attempting to do the entire time in order to gain a human host. Yes. His mi- mind finally broke. So in when Gray tried to shoot himself in the neck, he didn't. His mind snapped. Yeah. And Stem took the opportunity to kind of wall him in into this kind of fantasy world yeah. where everything is fine. Mm. But in reality everything that had happened had actually happened yes. and stem has full control yes and shoots cortez and walks out and then credits and then credits the film was so fucking good and it was so fucking well made that everything it literally was like your usual suspects kaiser sozo moment it was only when you got to the end it all made sense and you end up going back and you're like this bitch <gasps> jesus it was so well paced as well. It was yeah. very well paced. It was, you know, I, I didn't feel like I sat and watched a full-on film. No. I I thoroughly enjoyed myself. This this is so worth the ticket money. And it's a great shame that this did not get the exposure. It didn't get the proper release it should have got. No. Bloomhouse have fucking done it again. Yeah. They are on a good run with this. Yeah. And they've got Halloween coming up. Oh, can they make it a triple? I reckon they can. I've been very fearful about Halloween because obviously I've been broken hearted many, many times. But I think with Bloomhouse behind it, I think this is going to be something. And Upgrade kind of gave me the warm, fuzzy feeling that, you know what, it's going to be okay. Yeah, it's definitely, it's one of those, I think, casual sort of cult films. I, mm. I, I would be surprised if this doesn't get a cult following. Really I want surprised. it to get a following. It's by the time this episode comes out, I don't think it's going to be on at the cinema. So I am just going to say right now, even though we've spoiled the fuck out of it, watch it because it is a visual treat. It is how a good action film's meant to be made. It's how a good it's how a good film should be made. Yeah, and you know, watch this by any means necessary. If you can find a way of giving money, give the money because people behind this deserve the cash. They should get paid. Yeah. But by any means necessary, see this fucking film. I cannot stress that enough. And you know what? When it comes out on Blu-ray, 4K, I don't care how many different formats I'm getting them. Because, and you know what? Give us a fucking steelbook. I like steelbooks. Give me a steelbook. I really want an extended director's cut. Can you imagine? Oh. Please do that. If there's any extra footage, please give it. Yes. Footage, please. Yes. But yeah, upgrade. Go see. Our cinema release review for the next episode will be The Predator, the latest film directed by Shane Black. I bite you something, Mommy. Glad you something, Mommy. And this week's streaming review is Unearthed and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery, a Shudder exclusive which covers the inception and the making of the 1989 movie Pet Cemetery. Where do we so, begin with this? Um... 
Pet Cemetery is my favourite Stephen King book, so I was totally looking forward to watching mm. this and learning a bit more. And I also realised halfway through that it'd been a long time since I'd seen the film. Yeah. So it was a lot of reminders about. Well, Pet Cemetery is one of those films that you don't go back in a rush to watch again because no. it is a very heavy hitting film. Yeah, and I also realised that most of my memories of Pet Cemetery too. Ooh. Um, which isn't a good one. So I was a bit confused at certain points. Yeah. This documentary just covers the inception. Yep. The beginning of it actually goes through what it took to even get the script onto a table. Yeah, people weren't too keen on actually making this into a film at all. Well, they were saying that Stephen King's time had passed, mm. so they, would, they wouldn't even consider looking at the script. Mm. And it took a writer's strike to actually get it just to pick anything up yeah like this this is here let's just get it done yeah which is kind of serendipitous but but it's also kind of the same for the book as well wasn't it yeah well the whole book was based on a moment in his life where he thought his kid was about to get hit by a truck mm. and he said that was the scariest moment of his life so he literally wrote from the point where he almost shat his pants yeah because they do talk about how this film is very different to yeah. any other book he's ever written yeah because it's actually more about the sort of psychological torment of death and yeah. losing a child yeah rather than sort of body gore horror or yeah. anything like that although that does come into it much later of course of course <laughs> naturally achilles tendon oh. <laughs> but obviously this documentary goes through all aspects of the making including bits that we really didn't need to know no there was this lovely woman who I, i've forgotten what her title was she was essentially in charge of putting things in fields mm. so she made like the graveyard didn't yeah. she which was interesting mm. but beyond that there wasn't really much else for her to talk about yeah it should be noted that this documentary on shudder it has a runtime of an hour and a half that is a lie no it is actually an hour and a half on oh no on shudder no it is it's um on um imdb imdb it's an hour and 15 minutes that is the lie yes but it actually feels like four hours when you're watching it. Yeah. The thing about this documentary, which I have a huge problem with, is it goes into the lives of people that it doesn't really need to go into. When yeah. I watch a film documentary, I want to know about the film. Like bit actors, so background people. Because it was filmed in Maine. Mm. Um, you had a lot of local people who were in the film. And you have to listen to every single local person's opinion yeah. on the film, which was quite tedious yes it got to a point of just i don't care about you get back to the actors get back to the actors that matter well there's only about four of them that you'd really want to talk to and unfortunately one of them has passed on rest yes. in peace oh. fred fred quinn oh that man was amazing herman monster oh. but um car 54 where are you <laughs> i never watched that i just remember the the theme tune car 54 yeah. yeah, yeah, I remember that. I just never watched it. Yeah. But anyway, anyway, anyway. I mean, where do we even? How do we even talk about this documentary? It's when it actually covered the film and the making of the film. Yes, it was fantastic. So I think we should concentrate on that part. Let's mm. pretend that a good half an hour of it didn't happen. I can do that. So that's the best way to do this. Yeah, the making of the film. Obviously, we've already discussed that it almost never got made. Yep, which would have been a travesty. Yeah. Um, obviously there was a lot of scenery that had to be, obviously they had to go to Maine because they wanted it to have the authentic Maine feel. 
Well, yeah, because I think most of his films, most of his film adaptations were actually filmed in California. But this one, you kind of, they felt you kind of had to film it in Maine. Yeah. Because everything that he discussed in the book actually existed. Yes. And also, it's it turns out he just wanted to pump a lot of money into the local economy. Yeah, which is odd. And he still lives there as yeah, well. So in his little it, gated house. Yeah, so, you know, he's benefited. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And they have as well. But, I mean, if we talk about how... So they discuss what changes they had to make to the towns and the houses. Mm. And then they found this... So the main house um, for the the main family that lived there. They found this nice little house. Mm. But in the book, Judd's house was opposite. And the house opposite didn't quite match. match. So they built this, like, facade yeah. on the front of this house, which was awesome. Yeah. And it was just literally, they just pegged a few poles in and yeah, just yeah. built around it. Yeah, yeah. Which, obviously, they had to do it to a special specification because it got burnt down. And it was yeah. these poor people who actually owned the house that had been surrounded. It was like, please don't burn my house. Please don't burn my house. Please yeah, don't yeah, because they actually set it on fire. Yes. There was <laughs> I gas absolutely shit to myself. Like, my fucking house. Imagine <laughs> the insurance for that. Fuck. Fuck. Well, they must have had a lot because it's like, yeah, if we burn this down, we have to buy these fuckers a new house. Yeah, build it from fucking scratch. Like the facade, they'd probably ask for. Cause yeah, I yeah. Would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want a nice fucking three-story. Yeah. Because it was only a bungalow or something, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And I do have to say, because obviously they used a real couple's house for the main... Um... Oh, the cute little old couple. Yeah. And it was like, she still did her washing in the house, so she yeah. tell him to stop recording. It's like, I'm getting me washing out. Yeah, I'm coming out. Stop recording. <laughs> the fact that they listened to her as well. I don't think you'd get that in this day and age, like... Some little old woman going, I'm coming out. And you're like, oh, fuck off, little old woman. We've moved you to a hotel. Where, how did <laughs> They'll you get do your here? laundry now. Yeah, how did you get here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just the little touches. And yeah. like the the cemetery in question, the pet cemetery, was actually a real place. Yeah. But it wasn't kind of there when they went to film. So they built this sort of creepier looking one, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, because it was all, obviously it's all based on circles because of the mythic wah, yeah. wah, wah, wah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the creepy local traditions of the natives. Weirdness. Yeah, <laughs> of whatever. It was really interesting to see, like, they, they had these, what were they called, those sort of white circles that they'd gone to. Oh, what was it they were called? I have no idea, but they were really pretty. Mm. I mean, I, this was a sort of about... An hour in, so by this point, your brain's kind of dying, but you're looking going, that looks cool, but I'm not listening. I'm just observing. Yeah. Um, But it, like, Maine is just really pretty, and I've decided that I want to go. Yeah. At least to just go knock on Stephen King's door, because apparently he's quite friendly. Yeah. And it's like, we'd have to go, I'm sorry we slated the documentary, but half of it was really good. I mean, I'm sure he's used to people slating his stuff. That's not discussed The Shining. The Shining. The Shining. His version. <laughs> <laughs> the Nicholson one was all right. Yeah, but I mean, it was better than his one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, and then obviously beyond that, they talked to, like they talked to the main actors, mm. and uh, another interesting point was the little kid. Yes. Um. What was his name Miko? Yeah. And how they tried really hard to not absolutely traumatize him for life. It- but, oh, God, it's like, obviously, <laughs> um, we're going to assume that everyone who's listening to this has seen Pet Cemetery. Yeah. And, of course, the thing that kills him is a fast-moving truck. Yes. Um, 
and the it, this goes into great detail about how they actually did that shot because I remember the shot mm. and it terrifies me to this day. It is a horrible shit your pants moment. Yeah, because oh god, yeah. Ugh. Um, but obviously they didn't. You can't stunt double a kid. Um, <laughs> no, kid. But... Well, not while he's running into the road. It's a bit hard to sort of put a dud, like a dummy or a dud in front. Yeah. But they did this really well. They used a mirror mm. and had him just stand there. And then for the actual impact, they had a lifelike dummy. Yeah, which, yeah. Which, you know, it's, it's still fucking works. Yeah, it was horrible. So, you know, you go into the nitty gritty about how certain shots were done. And it also, oh, my favourite part. This is, this is what actually redeemed this documentary for me. It actually went through uh, Fred Gwynn's um, prosthetics. For, oh, like, yes, it was wonderful oh yes like for his uh mouth and his yeah. throat oh i i'm a big fan of practical effects it's, they were amazing oh jesus were they amazing and yeah. it's not just for fred Gwynn's character it was as even well. for the little kid as well yeah. they had like these creepy dolls in his little face oh, oh yeah and they, they were just absolutely amazingly done they're the kind of shit you want for your halloween 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 decorations yeah totally yeah and oh we need uh, more of them in modern film uh, and the actress who played the mum oh um denise crosby yes oh god her prosthetics were amazing oh at the end when they were like so they had to do a reshoot yes and then they were like we we need more gore on her face essentially yes <laughs> and she had no idea what was going on it's just like wow i look horrible oh but it was so well done and um mm. you know obviously like when you put it all together and then you go back and you watch certain bits of the film and it's like oh wow they went through so much to get this perfect shot yeah and you appreciate it more yeah so that's the one good thing about this documentary you actually appreciate what everyone put in yeah because it was like a little family so everyone's really really invested and they yes. did 110 percent for this totally. film but sort of marrying the two with the prosthetics and the little kids there was a bit where they were talking about when they were trying not to traumatise him, but mm -hmm. they had to get this scene where uh, Miko bites into Fred Gwynn's neck. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And he was like, oh, I don't really want to do it because he's a little kid. And he's like, I don't want to bite someone. And they're like, no, you just bite it off. It's fine. So they got him to do it. But Fred Gwynn, being an actor, was like, so the kid bit it off. And then Fred Gwynn was obviously doing his death throes. Yes. And which then scared the kid. And he thought he'd really hurt him. And apparently he was, he had to be calmed down, didn't yeah, he? Oh, yeah. bless him. All of the hard work they'd done for the whole time. And I think that was literally the only point that, like, set him off. Yeah. It's, um, no, the little kids in that film, it's, obviously, the kid was there as a catalyst to get you right in the feels. And it helped that he was quite a cute kid. Yeah. To begin with. Not after the cemetery. No. 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 No, he still had the little chubby cheeks, though. Yeah, he's the kind of kid that you go, oh, look at the little, ah! Yeah, you bit off my hand. But you're so cute. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's weird to see what he grew into. Or yeah. what, sorry, that's really mean who. Yeah. Because <laughs> he looks nothing like. <laughs> yeah, the cheeks are gone. Yeah, he's just some kind of goth guy now, I guess. I'm not surprised by this, though. No. I mean, after what Fred Gwynn did to him, I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> he probably still has therapy for that. Yeah, and then I also didn't realise because there's two kids, mm. um, so you have um the main little Gage, but then you have Ellie, which is the daughter, and I didn't know that she was played by two. Well, this was yeah. the thing they actually two. said about um child um labour laws, yeah, labour yeah. laws, but they couldn't find a perfect match. Obviously, the little kid who played Gage, yeah. was 
not a twin, so yeah, so they couldn't have him doing that. But yeah. for the, the 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 daughter, they found uh, two twin, uh, well, two twins, one twin, two two girls, one twin set. Yeah, one set of twins, <laughs> and yeah, I never noticed. Yes, <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's really good. Yeah, that's good work on them. But you do have to feel sorry for the kid who played Cage because he just by himself. Yeah, all by himself, and had to work for. The amount for two kids. It's yeah. not fair. <laughs> but he's raking in the money now, I'm sure. Oh, on the convention circuit. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if uh, we ever get to see him on the convention circuit. That'd be cool. Yeah, we'll see. Exactly. Keep you informed. Yeah. We can literally go up to him and say, you made a shit up, Hans. <laughs> uh, what else was really interesting? Was it one of the characters? I want to say Zelda, the sister. The one with the... Kind the of skeletal woman. Yep, Zelda. Who was actually played by a young man. Yes. Because they couldn't find anyone sort of gaunt gaunt enough to do it. Oh, Jesus. The, what that poor fucker went through, though. Yeah, yeah. Oh, because obviously he was like, how many hours in prosthetics? Wasn't it nearly 24 yeah. hours? <laughs> yeah, so just for like a second. Yeah, and obviously that when you see Zelda in the film, you're like, oh. Yeah, yeah. Because um, wasn't it meningitis they wanted to recreate? I think so. It was something really sort of nasty. Yeah, and obviously like... it was eating away at them. So yeah. obviously they were losing muscle mass and like you see Ugh. their back bones and all. Yeah, there wasn't much of him. No, but I think the most harshest thing that he said was he tried to tear off the prosthetics, but yeah. he, ended, he ended up taking some skin off, so he had uh... to wait. But unfortunately, it took over eight hours to get all the shit off him because you have to use special solvents. Yeah. So that was quite... Oh, harrowing to hear and I'm like oh you poor fucker it's like a horror in itself yeah encased in your own misery yes <laughs> you can't get it off I think for me the most kind of heart-wrenching bit was the story that obviously in the production crew they obviously had to hold hands and one of the crew actually worked on Friday the 13th and the guy had said I don't want to work on another horror film and Fred Gwynn actually turned around to him and said, this this isn't a horror film. This is a story of loss. Mm. And then he kind of said to the... Well, he didn't kind of say to the guy. He said to the guy that, you know, he'd lost one of his children. And obviously this film kind of tells a story about how parents... Of, of their grieving, of their loss. And that yeah. kind of got me right in the feels. It was like, I don't want to know Fred Gwynn got hurt. Yeah, ever. yeah. And it's just, it's the fact that someone actually took the time to say about their own grieving loss. And obviously, I'm hoping that this was kind of a cathartic experience for him. Yeah, I mean, the film, I mean, I, I'd agree. The film's not a conventional horror. It is... I mean, there's horrific parts in it. But it's got, it's actually a real horrible way of dealing with grief and yeah, the loss of a child. It, it kind of tackles that. And that's why a lot of people actually... Did work on it. Even the director, uh, she had mostly done, I think, Madonna music videos mm. up until that point, and she was a bit like, mm, I'm not entirely sure. Then she had a read, a couple of chats, possibly even with Fred Wynn, and you know, and Stephen King. And it, you know, for her, it was, I'm not making this as a horror. I'm making this as grief that just happens to have some supernatural elements to it. Yeah, I mean, there was one part in the documentary where she said it's like a child's picture. So you have the house and you have the mummy, mm. the daddy, the sister and me. Yeah. And that was just it was a weird thing to watch on the screen because obviously Pet Cemetery, when you first watch it and when you're first going into it, it's sold as a horror. Yeah. 
so to hear that the director actually kind of pictured it as this child's drawing yeah it was a bit unsettling but you can completely understand where she was coming from on it well that's why it worked because it had to be unsettling you you can't sort of go yeah oh it's about a, a man who loses his kid and then buries it and then it comes back to life and it's a zombie yeah it's not that simple the film was just an emotional roller coaster i mean from the minute the kid gets hit by the truck you have like the grief there and then you have the funeral where Mm. there's the punch up and the kid's body flies out the fucking coffin oh god yeah fucking hell and then obviously they bury the kid once and then the dad digs him up and then buries him in the pet cemetery yeah. And then digs him up again to put him in the other place. And it's just like, our kids had three fucking burials. Yeah, yeah. No wonder he came out messed up. Ah, poor fucker. But then it also lends to the last bit where, obviously, he burns down Judd's house and then takes his wife. Yeah. And buries her with that creepy ending. And then I think it had how many endings? Three or four? It had three endings. Yeah. And I'm gutted they didn't use the first one that they mentioned what in, one was that one again? It was the telephone call where someone calls up. Was it? Is everything? Oh, it was Ellie. Ellie, the daughter, calls yeah. up from wherever she is. Yeah, and says, "Is everything okay?" And the mum answers. Yeah, and in her uh, hello, yes. See? But she turns to camera after throwing a voice like she, she's yeah. normal. Yeah. Um, and then apparently she, it would have had her turning to camera and smiling this really awful, creepy smile. And I kind of like the thought of that ending, the downer ah. ending. See, now I like the the the, ha- the hand on the shoulder. Yeah. Oh, and it cuts to black. Yeah, and it's like, darling. Yeah. I think that's the one that's in the book as well. Yeah. I like that because it's just like, oh, you done fucked up again, friend. Yeah. You fucking moron. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it's better than number two. I wonder if they're going to make her uh, an Earth and Untold, the Path to Pet Cemetery 2. I don't think they'll bother. I mean, it was awful, but it's pretty much the same people. Yeah. One thing I will say about this documentary is if you can cut away from the personal stories, Guff. It's actually really good. Yeah. It's I don't care if your husband proposed to you on set. I'm not here for that. I mean, I'm happy you found happiness, but for fuck's sake, get off my documentary. I want to know about the making of. Yeah, I want more Stephen King. I want more prosthetics. Give me information i don't want to know about whether or not it's all the fans come here to congregate once every fucking year or not yeah i don't care i want to know about the making of i want to know about any mishaps i kind of do like my onset mishaps except when they're fatal yeah that's kind of depressing i can only remember (laughs) one from the documentary was it the the little kid who played young judd yeah and he kept having to call the dog spot they kept calling the dog judd yes until they got really pissed off with him was like you are judd (laughs) the dog is spot (laughs) and yep and it turns out that one of the crew members became his teacher yes and reminded him of this in front of everyone (laughs) like that's that's a cool little nugget to know yeah that's really fun i'm not gonna crap all over this documentary because it was when it got to the bits that i wanted it to get to it delivered and I and I'm satisfied with that. It's just the fact that we had to go through so much guff to get through it. I think most of it was just padding. I think if it was just a normal documentary, I think it would have been well under an hour. Yeah. And I think that would have been enough. Forty five minutes. Yeah. Of tell me about this. Yeah. There was. I mean, it's nice to try and I suppose 
highlight all the the good local people that were mm. in the film and what it did for the town that it was filmed in. But that could have been five minutes. Yeah, I, I don't need to listen to every individual person. Yeah. I mean, it's good that they kept it all local, you know, local jobs for local people. Yeah. But when they're talking about like, oh, it was really annoying because, you know, they we would be driving somewhere and then the road would be blocked because it was like, oh, filming. I don't need to know that. No. I, I know that happens. Yeah. It's unnecessary information. Yeah. And I don't have time for this shit. No. You know, it's the documentary is almost as long as the actual film because of all <laughs> the padding. Much. And you don't need it. You don't need that. When people look at documentaries, they just want to know how it was made. They want information. Yes. Useful information. Indeed. I didn't mind the stories about Fred Gwynn because obviously he couldn't be part of this documentary, obviously, for reasons. Yeah. You know, it's nice hearing the stories about him because it felt like he was included within it. Mm. But that's about as far as I want any outside information to go. Yeah, there's just no need to just visit people that were barely in it, like yeah, background person number one. Yeah. Don't need that. Yeah, I don't need to know about everyone who turned up for the casting calls for extras. Oh, God, yeah, no, I don't need to know that either. Yeah, I mean, it's good they turned up and, you know, mentioned, oh, they had a huge attendance for these small parts, which is great, but I don't need to know individual stories about it. No, no, not at all. Um, So, I guess, good documentary, could have been shorter. Exactly. Our streaming content review for our next episode will be American Vandal Series 2, exclusively on Netflix. Pay up, Mortimer. I've won the bet. Here, one dollar. <laughs> oh, wait, okay. Perfectly useless psychopath like Valentine and turned him into a successful executive. And during the same time, we turned an honest, hard-working man into a violently deranged would-be killer. <laughs> This episode's Review Rewind is Trading Places, the 1983 American comedy film directed by John Landis, starring Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. Woohoo! Now then, I have to admit, when we first announced this, I was really, really excited. Right. But then, after the horribleness of Blues Brothers, right, and then I saw that this was John Landis again with Dan Aykroyd, I got a bit of the EGBGs. Okay, fair. I know it's different, but you had a lot of the same ingredients. We had Dan Aykroyd and John Landis, and then two are very comfortable with each other. And I think that's where Blues Brothers kind of hit its bad point. Everyone's too comfortable with each other. And there's also a Belushi in this as well, which... Is really it the gets... lesser Belushi, though, isn't it? Yeah, but he was better in this. He's pretty much better in general. <laughs> Controversial point. But... um. I have to admit, when I started watching this, I realised that the problem with the Blues Brothers is the comfort with each other. Whereas because they added Eddie Murphy into the mix, there was someone there to keep them on their toes. And we got Dan Aykroyd at his best. Indeed. Mm-hmm. I thought I was wondering where you were going to go with it, this because I was like, you didn't hate it, surely? No. Surely. No, I loved it. And it, the reason why I was able to look back at this and love it and look back at Blues Brothers and not love it so much was because there was complacency 
in Blues Brothers, Dan Aykroyd was very complacent. He was not his usual self, I don't think. No, not Whereas at all. Whereas this one, he was on form. It's peak Aykroyd. Oh, yeah. And it's just... It is about having something to almost fear in your co-star. Because this was Eddie Murphy in his fucking prime. Yeah. Oh, it's just... There are so many bits where he just steals the fucking show. Like the bit where he's in the park with the two cops pretending to be the amputee. Oh, the blind guy. Yeah. (laughs) And they pull off his glasses, make him sad. I can see! It's a miracle! Thank Jesus! (laughs) But anyway, I'm going a bit way too forward here. Shall we at least have a bit of a plot overview? Plot overview, okay. (laughs) Um, Well, I guess the easiest way to say it is if anyone's ever heard of the story Prince and the Pauper. Yeah. But it's kind of like a modern take. It's basically two insanely rich brothers just decide that they want to do a wager on whether or not it's sort of natural nurture mm. in terms of being successful and being a criminal. Yes. And they choose their... Is he the managing director, Dan Aykroyd? Yes. They choose their managing director because he's a very privileged, really nice guy. Yeah. Clean he's a bit slate. dim. He's a bit people dim. He's, he's money intelligent. Yes. But he's people dim. He's very sheltered. Yes. He doesn't really have to do anything because he's got a manservant to kind of do stuff for him all day. He's British manservant. British manservant, because that's what we do. (laughs) Um, And they've got Eddie Murphy, sort of homeless con man-esque type Mm. person. And they they witness sort of the two have an altercation and then they decide these are the two that we want to use. And they kind of plot Aykroyd's sort of fall from grace and then basically implant Eddie Murphy's character into Dan Aykroyd's role and then kind of leave Aykroyd to the dogs, Yeah, essentially. And, as usual, hilarity ensues. Indeed. And then... So you have Jamie Lee Curtis, who plays a hooker, who kind of takes in Dan Aykroyd and tries to get him back on his feet. You have the manservant, who is played by Denham Elliott. And, obviously, he's kind of in on it but he's not in in spirit he knows what's going on but he just thinks they're all assholes so yeah he's kind of just like i know what my place is but then towards the end he joins forces he finds friends yeah he finds friends he it kind of sees the light shall we say yeah he sees freedom Mm. obviously you have the two brothers called duke and duke yep duke and duke that was it and this wager is basically just about tearing people's lives apart Because they can. I mean, it's all for a dollar, isn't it? Yeah, it's a dollar bet about how they can basically fuck up people's lives. Yeah, because they won a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. And the brothers, oh, I'm going to get a Nobel Peace Prize one day. And obviously it is kind of like the Freaky Friday role reversal. Mm. Because it is basically overnight as well. It's Mm. literally, the way they get Dan Aykroyd is they get him arrested on drug charges, isn't it? And And theft. theft. Yeah. So he has to spend a night in jail. And that's basically where it basically takes a nosedive. Yeah. And how he's introduced to Jamie Lee Curtis is um, the guy that the brothers have employed to basically help them to do the fall from graces. So that guy give you a hundred bucks just do this you yeah. know asking for drugs kiss him basically him. yeah right in front of his fiance and she does it yeah who's also the brothers's niece yeah i mean she was quite a vacuous human anyway so oh, i think she was he a... was much better off without her yeah but he i mean he started off as a sort of 
this vacuous irritant. Yeah, he was um he was too dim and he was very snobby. Yeah, he was he was kind of a product of his own environment like he he only hung out with people of the same ilk. Yes. Yeah, so his people skills were kind of refined to having slight digs at each other about whether or not who's richer. Yeah. <laughs> that was literally it. Yeah. And it's obviously you've got Eddie Murphy who uh, they speculated he come from a broken home and everything and that he's probably done drugs, this, that and the other. And one thing I didn't like about this was another reason why they picked Eddie Murphy was because he was black. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of racist undertones. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the film is still quite relevant to this yeah. day. I mean, oh, there's hell parts yeah. of it that's fucking dated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's That's not... But mm. it's still relevant and... I think the way Eddie Murphy portrays the character and the way he handles the way he gets spoken to and the way that they make loads of assumptions about him. Yes. Because he never says truly whether or not they're right. He just kind of goes with it because yeah. he understands that that's what they think and there's no point trying to... Argue. Yeah. I mean, they're giving him money, so yeah. why bother? <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, one of the things that... obviously obviously they're doing is they're taking him out of what they think is his natural environment to see if he's trainable yeah like a dog and it turns out that he kind of is in their eyes yeah but it's the fact that he's intelligent basically they own a brokerage firm mm. eddie murphy's character summed it up best he said you're all just bookies yeah basically what they do is they make bets on products yeah so he was able to use street knowledge to and adapt that into fitting into this brokerage firm and he helps them make money. I think what they missed in their, their quest for this Nobel Peace Prize is that it's not so much being a product of your environment, but having the opportunity to make something of yourself. So yeah. what they did isn't they, they didn't quite train him, but they gave him the opportunity to be to be able to use his his mind better yeah rather than having to hustle because there's like there's no other way he's going to make money yeah he was able to have a, a good job yeah and he was able to he was people listened to him mm. and he was able to make decisions and earn more money yeah it's all about opportunity and then yeah. for dan ackwood's character it was what happens if we take away opportunity yeah and it turns out that because of his upbringing he could not survive no <laughs> he had no idea of the way of the yeah. world I mean, it also brings about the point about if you have been dragged up, the one thing you learn is survival mechanisms. Yeah. We can survive most situations. Whereas if you are born into a privilege, mm. you have no reason to learn how to survive because you are always provided for. Yeah, someone is always looking out for you. You always have a safety net. So once that safety net is gone, you're free falling. And it's only by the grace of god that he had jamie lee curtis's character take pity on him that he wasn't left out on the streets to fucking die basically yeah because he had no money all of his accounts were frozen because you know he's just spent a night in jail they think he's embezzling money yeah he has no home because he's just been turfed out of it yeah he has nothing he has no job because basically they've turfed him out of his job he has absolutely nothing mm. And he also realised that because his life is such a, a shambles, really, he has no friends either. Well, his life's fake. Yeah. And he, he realises that his friends are fake because mm. when he... There's a scene where he goes to ask them for a loan... To help him. To, to help him be able to figure out how to get all his, you know, his wealth back. They basically shun him. Yeah. And 
that's pretty fucking sad. It shows you how shallow people can yeah. be. And I think in that point, he realised, you know, I don't actually have any friends and I don't yeah. have anyone. Yeah. Uh, what really struck me was his fiance as well was so convinced that he was a drug dealer. I how long has she known him for? Yeah, but she was played for, as she was played as a dimwit. Yeah. She was played as just a, a woman of leisure. Yeah. Who is just, you know, although she really was seemed to be into him wanting to have babies, it's not like she really had a thought of her own. I don't think she wanted babies with him as such. I think she just wanted to be a kept wife. Well, she said, there was a scene where she was like, I wanted to have your babies. Yeah. On the steps when they were breaking up after yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis. And it's just, it's like, you can see where it's kind of been bred into her that that is all that she you, needs to aim for. Yeah, you've got to find a good man and breed for him. Yeah, and... So I, you know, I, I wouldn't expect anything less from her. Going, oh, I don't, I don't want to go out because she'd moved on pretty quick to his his Maybe. rival, yeah. yeah, Todd or whatever his name is, yeah, twat, twat. <laughs> um, and then you've got Eddie Murphy's character who he doesn't really have any friends as such. He's just no, he's a, more of a barfly, isn't he? Yeah, he um, he is basically just a survivalist. So and then when he gets a little bit of money, when he finally realizes that actually they're not well at that point. They're they're giving him this stuff. He goes back to one of his old haunts, pays up his bill, mm. and then everyone's like, you know, buys everyone a drink, shows off his wealth because yeah, you know it's about time, and invites everyone back. And then he reminded me a lot of myself whenever you you make the mistake of inviting too many people back to your home, when you end up going around going, "What's this? What are you doing? What have you done on my rug? Well, who put a cigarette butt here? Yeah." And then he's like, "Everyone out! Everyone out!" And he, he doesn't he call them all leeches? Yeah. Because they weren't really his friends. They were just people who frequented a bar that he kind of knew. And he realised that he didn't actually even know them because they had no respect for his belongings. Yeah. Because as far as they were aware, they were his belongings and he Mm. had been told that they are now his belongings. Yeah. And he's invited people around because he, you know, he wants, he's finally someone and then realises actually it doesn't really buy you friends because... Look at the fuck they're doing to my house. Yeah, they're not your friends. They're just there for your money. Yeah, um, and that's another learning curve. So I really, I really liked it, and I liked all the little lessons that came out of yeah. it. It's definitely in comparison to as you were talking about earlier, Blood, uh, Blood Brothers, <laughs> Blues Brothers. It's I think that everyone in that film is a little bit more tuned in. Like everyone understands it's a film. Yeah, it wasn't a vanity project. It was no. actually a legitimate film. Yeah, with a good idea. Yes. <laughs> good script. Uh, for me, one of the best moments is when um, basically you have the reveal to uh, Eddie Murphy's character, Valentine. Um, Not when he's in the bathroom. Yeah, when he's in... <laughs> put a cigarette in his mouth. It was a joint, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously the two brothers come in and they reveal the bet. Yeah. And um, they also reveal their plans to swap them back. Because they don't want the N-word running their the business. Show. So. Yeah. And when you're watching it as well, it's very silent. And I think it's quite good in the way that it's done, where you're watching it and you're introduced to these really mega rich white people. And then you realise that these two old men, most of their servants are black. Yeah. Although Dan Aykroyd's servant was white, which I thought was quite interesting. But all the other ones were, they were black people mostly. Yeah. Yeah. They they give this guy was it oh it's it's bonus season and it's five dollars but it was split between them so it was actually two fifty two fifty each and the guy was just like oh fucking wankers yeah and you're kind of like okay I, I understand what's going on here but it wasn't until that very scene that it all clicked where it clicked and you went no actually they are absolute arseholes because there were points where I thought 
I think it's Donamichi's brother, Mortima, where he seems to be the softer brother. Yeah, and it's him who's in it for the Nobel Peace Prize. And I was just like, he, I, there were points where I was like, he's the good guy, he's the good brother. Yeah. But he's the one that says that. Yeah. And I'm like, you okay, bastard. You, you are not, <laughs> you are no better than the other one. Absolutely um, not. Basically, the brothers are kind of separated by one's tall, gaunt, the other one's shorter, slightly podgier. Yeah. And like the one who you think is the bad brother uh, at one point drops a money clip to try and catch out Eddie Murphy. Yeah, yeah. Thinking he's going to steal it. And this was kind of like a horrible scene for me to watch because it was just the way Eddie Murphy was kind of composing himself. Because yeah. he obviously these two guys are sitting in a lift because their lift has special chairs. In I it. mean, I was impressed that there's like a, a nice little bench, a gold bench in this lift. But obviously they're in the lift, so He's Eddie wrong. Murphy's belted it down the stairs to return this money clip. And it was just something he said that just kind of broke me, kind of. And that was look, you can count it; it's all there. Because he would have been, I'm sure, maybe in another life he would have, if he'd given that to anyone people would be like oh you stole it or yeah. whatever much like in his introduction to Dan Aykroyd's character where Dan Aykroyd was coming out of his workplace and just bumps into Eddie Murphy and drops then his drops case. his briefcase and Eddie Murphy goes to give it back but Dan Aykroyd is so blinded by his fear because he's fucking terrified and yeah. it's like you stole it you stole it you and stole it and then starts begging for his life <laughs> yeah meanwhile Eddie Murphy's like what the fuck are you talking about I'm just but then there's it. police everywhere and he gets around with a fucking stick and it's just it was sad yeah <laughs> to be like you have to justify that you found this and you haven't stolen from it yeah even I, though you're now the head of the the company carpet. yeah <laughs> and it is just literally that that kind of broke me a little bit yeah. it was just like it was just the way he was composing himself as well it was kind of this was really shitty i quite liked eddie murphy's character and sometimes i find eddie murphy is a bit much but he was kind of toned down but not he didn't lose himself, if no. that makes sense. He, he more was realistic. More, he was more in control when he was the homeless chancer. Yeah. He was fucking out there because he had to be. Yeah. Whereas when he was in the suit, when he was in the office, he knew that he had to have composure. Mm. And I think Eddie Murphy played that balance perfectly. Yeah. But we've gone a bit backwards, but let's go a bit more forwards. Yeah. <laughs> When obviously Eddie Murphy overhears and is obviously quite offended because they've called him the N-word. Yeah. He goes off to find Dan Aykroyd's character, who we had just previously seen trying to set him up with drugs to try and get his old job back. Yeah, because they're both in a misunderstanding because the last time they saw each other was this altercation that got one of them put in prison or yeah. jail for a couple of nights. And, you know, the other one was fine. Yeah. And now the roles are reversed. Yes, but um, all of this has come about because of the Christmas party. And mm. um, we actually see how low Dan Aykroyd's character is sunk because he's stealing from the buffet. At one point, he steals a whole fucking salmon fillet and shoves it down his Santa costume. His dirty Santa costume. Oh, it's so grubby. How he got in there without anyone going, why is this dirty old Santa? Because it was like Christmas. a money box. <laughs> yeah, he knit the money box. I don't think he came in with that. I think he stole it. <laughs> But obviously he was there primarily to try and fit up um, Valentine. Yeah. And it backfired. Yeah. Horribly. So, of course, the next time they kind of catch a glimpse, it's Valentine's just figured out that what the deal is and what the bet was. And he's trying to get Dan Aykroyd so he could tell him. But obviously yeah. he just misses him because Dan Aykroyd gets on the bus. Yeah. Um, drunk as a fucking skunk. 
then obviously we had this moment where Dan Aykroyd gets off the bus and it just starts pissing it down with rain. It's and the just, dog pisses on his foot. Yeah, and it's just, uh, you get the impression, you know, he's just eating a, a salmon fillet through a dirty beard. <laughs> Sorry, he, I don't mean it last. It, it, it was such a sight. Though. Yeah. <laughs> but it's literally, that's how low he sunk. So what he ends up doing is putting a gun to his head and he pulls the trigger. But there's no bullets. Oh no, there was a bullet. But the gun jammed. It's only when he threw the gun off to the side yeah, that it went... So... He goes back to the little flat that he shares with Ophelia, Jamie Lee Curtis's character. And Valentine just happens to see the doors open. He follows it. I think he basically takes a chance, doesn't yeah. he? And Dan Aykroyd's character about two seconds before just locks himself in the bathroom. Sits in the bath and just gives himself an overdose. Yeah. Um, and Valentine kind of breaks down the door and they take him back to his old house his old house where he's he wakes up he thinks it's all a dream and they're like no because it basically what he does is he's regaling this oh it was horrible in this yeah he uses another n-word yeah yeah but not the as bad one but no. it's still bad yeah and then see fucking eddie murphy just looking at him and then he like get jumps out of bed and starts strangling him yeah and so after they pull him off Poor fucking Valentine. They explain to him what's happened. Yeah. And then we... Because obviously this is on Christmas Day as well. So Merry Christmas. We know why your life's ruined. So we cut to another scene where they're all in the in the lounge. And Jamie Lee Curtis is eating a salad. As you do. As you do on Christmas. And Dan Aykroyd is cleaning guns. Yeah. Because he wants to go old school. Yeah. Can't blame him. Basically how you should go. If only like It's a Wonderful Life went that way, it would have been a much more entertaining Him going thing. pure postal. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, Valentine's like, you don't want to do this. This isn't, no, there are better ways to get to them. So through, in the true spirit of Christmas, they decide to do onto them as they have done onto us. <laughs> yeah, because they see the, oh, I've forgotten what his name is. The he guy, was um, Principal Vern in The Breakfast Club. He was. He was. Because I couldn't shake that out of my head. <laughs> um, but they see him on the TV because they were, uh, it was a news article. It was a news story about... Frozen orange juice? Yeah, it so the, the crop crops. report. Yeah. The crop report's coming out, So and that's integral to the trading for the new year. Yeah. So the Duke brothers have been paying this guy to basically give them the information before anyone else so then they can make yeah. more money. And Valentine and um, Dan Aykroyd, I don't know why I call them that, uh, <laughs> Valentine and Winthorpe, mm-hmm. both realise and they come up with this this plan to incept yeah. and, and get this crop report and fuck over the Duke brothers and leave them destitute with nothing. Yeah. And then that's when you see your first, your first Belushi. Yes. <laughs> The, the alive Belushi at this point. Yes. And obviously he's dressed up like a gorilla because, you know, it's, it, it, this comes, a, it's a New Year's train, isn't it? Yeah. So they formulate the plan on Christmas, but we jump to New Year's Eve. Yeah. So obviously Eddie Murphy finds out the plans because he eavesdrops on a telephone call. So he gets when and where everything is happening. So they're able to intercept yeah. on this train journey. So you have Eddie Murphy as a Nigerian. A Cameroon. I'm oh, sorry, Cameroon. he was Cameroon. I beg your pardon. He yeah. was 
the one thing I remember from that is he had beef jerky in his gown. Yeah, do you want beef jerky? Uh, beef jerky. The, but he, <laughs> it, for some reason, he goes, "There's plenty, you know." Uh, yeah, and it's just like, what the hell? It was very, it was a very weird scene. Like, obviously, you sit there going, "Oh, coming to America," because yeah. that came later. Yeah. Um, and then you had Denham Elliot. He was the priest, the Irish the priest. priest. And then Jamie Lee Curtis, who was meant to be Austrian, but then fucked it and said she was Swedish. Yes. And then the slightly controversial point of Dan Aykroyd. Blacked up. Blackface as this Jamaican. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I thought it was funny. Um, <laughs> but I could, I could kind of see where they kind of thought that that might work because it's kind of a farce. Yeah. In itself, but also what could he wear that no one else might recognize him but coloring in your face isn't gonna change your face no (laughs) i think at this point blackface wasn't as bad back in the 80s there was a lot of things that weren't as bad it was a cringy moment it's it was a very cringe moment i tried to because obviously when you watch it and you because i'd forgotten he went blackface so i was kind of like oh yeah, and then the accent, I was like, oh, don't oh, stop no. it, stop it, please. But then I was like, no, Eddie Murphy was there, and he's not the sort of person who would take that shit lying down. So if he was willing to go with it, who am I to talk? Yeah, yeah. Was... Eddie Murphy in the 80s was a powerhouse, and he was very vocal about what he liked and what he didn't like. So I don't think it would have flown if he was offended. Yeah, I mean, the way it was done wasn't in a malicious it wasn't racist. It was. Yeah, it was. It, yeah. it wasn't intentionally racist. No. Well, how it looked. Yeah, it yeah. modernised. You know, no. Yeah. Um. Anyway, they, the the guy Beeks, that's his name. Beeks. Beeks sees through it and then ushers them all into the hold in this train, where for some reason I don't quite know why James Belushi follows them at all. Because he's the patter guy. Yeah, but that, they, that it was essentially he was the party. He guy. was a party guy, but he he spoke a couple of words to them. They told him to fuck off, and then he thought, "I'll still follow you." And it was just like, "You don't tell party guy to fuck off." Yeah, <laughs> and then meanwhile, there's this gorilla randomly in a hole because that's how you transport gorillas. Yeah, in a very small cage, in a train. Yeah, but the gorilla falls in love with the gorilla suit. So I won't say yes. it's James Belushi himself. No. <laughs> Um, but I think basically, I'm get, well. You could call him by his proper name. I'm going to call him the principal. Beaks, it's Beaks. It's the principal. <laughs> For two weeks, he's got you. <laughs> Beaks kind of threatens the Belushi gorilla, and real gorilla gets a wee bit fucked off with that, so knocks him out. Yeah, and then they put him in. They put Beaks in the gorilla suit, and then lock him in the cage. Yeah, sellotape up his mouth. Lock, him up, lock up the cage, and then he ends up going to Africa, I think, and yeah, yeah. with his new gorilla lover. Yeah, because let's be honest, the gorilla fucks him. Yeah, the gorilla loves him. I don't quite know why he couldn't get the ha- the head off, though. They only sellotaped up his mouth. His hands worked. Yeah, that's a good point. That really annoyed me, because he's there doing like the mime thing, like, ooh, help me. And the, 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 the hands, I think it was the... Didn't they kind of tape up his hands, though, so he couldn't get grip? Yeah, but even that, you can knock yeah, it off, surely. Kind of, yeah, so, you can shake your head about. Yeah, I, I couldn't quite get why. Maybe he secretly enjoyed it. Maybe he did. I mean, his eyes did look quite happy in his last scene. Um, but yeah, they get the thing. They give the false information to the Duke brothers. And 
I suppose they go and wage their war on the uh, trading floor. Yep, the battleground is the trading floor. They get all of the savings from the poor butler. And Ophelia. Ophelia and... Um, they, they basically gamble. Yep. They do what they do best. They gamble. Yep. And it pays off. Handsomely. Yes. Uh, it was actually really nice to see the Duke brothers shit themselves. Because at this point, you've established that they're a couple of old Yeah, and they're trying to make their way to the floor because the, informa- the false information they were given, they were told to sell. I believe so, yep. And in fact, what they should have been doing is... Buying. Buying. And then selling once yes. it dropped. Yeah. And yeah, so he was just selling until he fucking collapsed. I was like, calm down. I think he got mm. crushed. Yeah. And then they had to bring him out and they were kind of in their old ways, toddling over to... Yeah. And yeah, they got fucked over. They lost their seat. They lost their seat. They lost their houses or their property. They lost everything. Because they didn't actually have tangible cash money. Nope. So they lost all their assets. Yep. Uh, everything was placed on hold. And just the most beautiful scene in cinematic history. Basically, Ackroyd, Murphy, Dollar Bet. <laughs> yes, the classic. The proper switcheroo. Yeah. And it was just, oh, it was just the handing over of the dollar. And then the guy falls down after passing out. Yeah. He's like, oh, my heart. <laughs> And then you get the, I don't know, weeks later and they're on a beach. In the paradise. I mean, I don't understand why. What got me about that scene was, why was Eddie Murphy wearing a jumper on the beach? He likes jumpers. He was rich. He's probably gone eccentric. Maybe. Maybe he was getting a, maybe it was a good breeze. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, it's a nice tropical jumper. And um, they all managed to pair off and go off into the sun. I don't want to say sunset because the sun was very much shining. Yeah, they just parted on the beach with their lobster and shrimp or whatever it was yes. they were eating. Yes. Yeah. So I suppose we've gone over what the plot was, bits of it. <laughs> what was the review? The Metacritic score for this was uh, a very lovely 69. Hmm. So only nine more than Blues Brothers. Yeah, which is wrong. I would have given it maybe a good 70, 75. I'd have given it 75 to 80. So, yeah. The thing is, this film was very good. It was your basic 80s comedy with a morality tale in it. Yeah. But it was entertaining and doing it. And like I said, this was Dan Aykroyd at his best. We, last episode, we saw Dan Aykroyd at his most sedate, I think. Yeah. And this was him basically being who he needed to be. Yeah, I can, I can get that. I mean, I'll meet you at 75. Yeah. I mean, I give it a, a slightly, I give it a seventy, just because I guess I don't really have a reason. I just don't, I don't, just don't think it's quite eighty yet. But it hasn't aged badly. No, it hasn't aged badly it's at all. It's still kind of relevant. Yeah, I mean, I remember you saying that there is still amount of relevance to this, mm. and there is an underlying theme of what greed can do to you. Mm. Because what was ultimately the Duke brothers' downfall was their greed. Yeah. They they betted people's lives for a dollar. Yeah. When they had many, many dollars. Yes. You know, they could have at least done the bet for two. <laughs> oh, I think a life's worth five. Come along. Yeah. But it's literally, they were so rich and out of touch that people's lives did not mean anything. No. And that's a really horrible kind of uh, a thing to realise. And it's also what... You look at the kind of lives that, you know, the people that they surrounded themselves led. Mm. 
you know, them themselves ha- surround themselves with... People like them. It was stuffy old white men. Stuffy old white men and little yuppies. Mm. The yuppies got the me. The young versions of the old. Yeah. The before the transition to grey-hairedness, they yeah. were yuppies. And if you weren't a yuppie or a grey-haired old stuffy, you were a black man servant. Yeah. That was basically their circle. Yeah. And it was such a hollow, shallow pool of existence. Yeah. None of them had any personalities. No. None of them had any kind of common sense. No. It's They knew what they could do on the trading floor, but that was about it. Yeah. Whereas you have... I, I'm going to use Ophelia as the example of this. She didn't have money, but she was incredibly smart. She lived in a run-down apartment, but she was a prostitute who owned herself was able to save a lot of money. She had a retirement plan. Yeah, three years and she was done. Yeah, we did see more tits of Jamie Lee Curtis. Than it's I... not an 80s film unless you see Jamie Lee Curtis's tits. I'm just jealous because they're amazing. She's got great figure. She has. This film is brilliant and it shows not to judge books by covers. You know, that it's got all the 80s cliche cheesy shit. There's, there's learnings in this film. Yes. And that's what made the 80s so great. We've learned so fucking much from 80s films and this film helps you learn. Definitely. So, say 75? I think with your speech, just ramp it up to 80. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? And our review rewind for our next episode will be... Just get me in there. Oh, intriguing. Raising Arizona. (gasps) Yes! Cage. Cage. (sighs) Yay. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us for episode four of the Instant Junk podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Jill. See you later.